Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, more news regarding the Hillsong controversies, which just keep growing. And Virginia's Governor Glenn Youngkin signs a bill into law that protects donor privacy. We begin today with another Southern Baptist leader throwing his hat into the ring to be president of that denomination. Yeah, longtime Southern Baptist pastor Bart Barber, who has served in numerous leadership roles at the nation's largest Protestant denomination, has joined the race for president of this evangelical denomination. Barbara, who's 52 years old, has been pastor since 1999 of First Baptist Church of Farmersville, Texas. He joins two other candidates in the running for SBC president. They are Tom Askall, who is a Florida pastor who has claimed liberals are taking the SBC uh, over, and Robin Hathaway, who is a former Southern Baptist Convention missionary. The election campaign, which follows Ed Litton's presidential victory at the 2021 Nashville gathering, is unusual as presidents typically seek a second one-year term. Yeah, but Ed Litton announced that he would not run again after facing a variety of controversies, including one over plagiarism in his sermons, for which he has since apologized. A previous candidate for SBC president, Florida Pastor Willie Rice, announced on Wednesday of last week that he was withdrawing from the race after reports that his church had ordained a deacon who was a former school teacher and admitted to having a sexual relationship with an 18-year-old student in the 2000s came to light. Our next story is the latest in the saga over the megachurch Hillsong. Yeah, the results of an investigation by an independent law firm into Hillsong, New York City, paints a picture of a church leadership that was filled with abuse, sexual misconduct, and secrecy. Uh, the details include several extramarital affairs by the New York Church's former pastor, Carl Lentz, spiritual abuse of volunteers and staff, as well as multiple incidents of consensual or non-consensual sexual interactions between church leaders and congregants, staff, volunteers, or non-churchgoers. Now, that last bit was from the Christian Post, which originally broke this story. A lesson flattering documentary on Hillsong aired on Discovery Plus last week in details of another report which leaked to the media alleging that Reed Bogard, the former pastor of Hillsong's Dallas, Texas church, had raped a staff member. Yeah, in the wake of all of these events, uh, multiple prominent Hillsong pastors in the United States have resigned or announced that their churches would be disaffiliating from Hillsong. And as if all of the news about Hillsong wasn't enough, Hillsong Worship, the music arm of Hillsong Church, has withdrawn from a tour with Christian music group Casting Crowns. Yeah, it was a 21-date tour scheduled to begin on April 22nd, next week in Tupelo, Mississippi. A statement said that Hillsong Worship was withdrawing in order to put the health and well-being of the people of our team first, that from the release that they put out. 
Hillsong Worship has released 36 albums with more than 500 songs since 1992. That's 30 years ago. And the church estimates that its songs have been sung by an estimated 50 million people in about 60 languages. The group's latest album, These Same Skies, was released just a few months ago in November of 2021. Now, Hillsong Worship received a Grammy Award for Best Contemporary Christian Song or performance for their song, What a Beautiful Name, back in 2018. And by the way, Natasha, I just wanted to say a couple of words about that. If your church uses a Hillsong song in your worship services, you are financially supporting Hillsong. You, your church, in order to use these songs, has to have a licensing agreement, usually done through an organization called CCLI, the Christian Copyright Licensing Incorporated. And uh, you pay money for that license, and CCLI will then pay the copyright holder, which in the case of Hillsong songs is, of course, Hillsong. So I'm not telling people that they shouldn't be singing Hillsong songs in church, but given what we know about that organization, I think all of us all around the country and all around the world have to ask ourselves whether we want to continue to financially support such an organization. Warren, we need to take a break here, but when we return, how a COVID-caused administrative backlog at the Internal Revenue Service is having a negative impact on ministry transparency. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Our next story is a fascinating one that involves a small Disciples of Christ college in Georgia. But the implications of this story could be enormous for a lot of Christian groups around the country. Yeah, it's, it really is a fascinating story. Um, and it goes way back to the 1990s when Bob Harris, who is the president of Christian College of Georgia, applied for an obscure license from the Federal Communications Commission. Harris learned that schools like his could apply for educational broadband service licenses to allow them to broadcast educational programs. Now, such a license, he thought, would allow the school, which provides remote education for part-time clergy, to the Disciples of Christ denomination to expand its ministry. Yeah, so the school could also lease some of the excess bandwidth to a cell phone provider to make a few extra bucks to support the mission of the school. Since the license was free, Harris thought, well, why not? Nothing to lose. So he applied for a license, got it, and the school, which had been founded back in the 1940s, currently gets about $55,000 a year 
from a lease of its EBS, Educational Broadband Service License. The payer, the person that is licensing it, is T-Mobile, the massive cellular provider. But there was a change in the law in 2019. Yeah, the FCC now allows schools who have these educational licenses to sell them, and they are worth millions of dollars now. Last year, in fact, a company called WCO Spectrum offered the Christian College of Georgia more than $5.5 million for that license that it got for free back in the 90s. That sounds pretty great. Well, it does, but T-Mobile has no intention of allowing Christian College of Georgia to sell its license. When the school approached T-Mobile about the potential sale, which of course could affect that lease agreement, the telecom giant replied with an offer to buy the license themselves, but only for $1 million, much less than the $5.5 million offer, of course. And that offer came with a warning. T-Mobile would try to block any other sale of the lease. So what's going to happen? Well, it's not clear yet, but it's a pretty important issue. Um, For one thing, T-Mobile's 5G network, which it claims is the largest in the country, is built largely on leases just like this one from Christian College of Georgia. So it has kind of massive implications for the entire cellular communications grid. And when the FCC changed its rules to allow the sale of those licenses, that network was put at risk. At least two other religious schools have found themselves at odds with T-Mobile over EBS licenses. Yeah, the telecom giant isn't uh, going quietly into that good night, shall we say. They are currently suing Albright College, which is a United Methodist-affiliated school in Pennsylvania, to block a potential sale of Albright's EBS license. And T-Mobile, according to a court filing in the Albright suit, also claims that it settled a dispute with a Catholic college in Pittsburgh when the school agreed to sell its license to T-Mobile. All told, more than 2,000 EBS licenses exist around the country, and more than 100 of them belong to religious schools like Christian College of Georgia. So stay tuned. This is an obscure, kind of strange and technical story, but it will likely not remain obscure in the months ahead. Now we come to the story I promised before the break. It's the story of a huge backlog in the processing of Form 990s at the IRS. Yeah, and before I get into the story itself, Natasha, let me just uh, give you a little bit of background. You know, one of the things that we do here at Ministry Watch is that we post the financial statements of the 1,000 largest ministries in the country. We call it our Ministry 1000 database. I know a lot of our listeners probably know that. And we get that financial information mostly directly from the IRS. We've created a little software, a a bit of software code uh, called an API that will automatically download any changes made to the IRS database of Form 990s. Now, I know that's a little bit technical, but I say all of that to say this. We've been noticing a real slowdown 
in the feed that we get from the IRS. And in fact, I went onto the IRS site to try to figure out why there was such a slowdown. And there's actually a notice there that said that partly because of COVID and partly because of the economy, they're having difficulty hiring people. There's just been a tremendous slowdown in the processing of Form 990s. In some cases, we don't have financial information for organizations that, you know, uh, any more recent than 2019, which is over three years ago. So I asked our reporter, Shannon Cuthrell, to look into the situation. And she found that millions of tax returns and filings are still backlogged, including those in the Form 990 series. Yeah, as of March 18th, which now is nearly a month ago, and that was the la- when we checked it, the IRS's paper backlog topped 15 million, including 9.6 million individual and business tax returns, 1.3 million returns that the IRS hasn't even classified yet, so we don't even know what they are, and 3.8 million amended returns. It's unclear how many filings are delayed for tax-exempt organizations in particular. Um, Ministry Watch posed that question to IRS's media office but didn't receive an answer back from them. Nonetheless, the IRS website, as I mentioned a moment ago, currently displays a notice about delays in the processing of these Form 990s. So what are the implications of this? Well, one of them I just mentioned that some organizations that have met all of their filing deadlines still might not have financial information on the IRS website or on the Ministry Watch website now for more than three years. Uh, Just to give a sampling, the top five ministries in the Ministry 1000 database by revenue are World Vision, Compassion International, Catholic Relief Services, and Food for the Poor. Now, if you've been keep it up. That's only four. There's a fifth, Samaritan's Purse. But the four that I just mentioned don't have Form 990s any more recent than 2019. Now, Samaritan's Purse does have a 2020 Form 990, which is good, and that's on our site. But even that means that the most recent one is more than two years old. So is this situation likely to end anytime soon? Well, that's not clear. Uh, From 2010 to 2021, the IRS's budget declined by nearly 20%, and it lost over 33,000 full-time employees, mostly to retirement. Normally, I would say it's a good thing when a branch of the government shrinks. But in this case, the federal government may be penny-wise and pound-foolish. A recent decision to require nonprofits to file electronically, not via a paper should help the situation, uh, but the IRS um, is still far behind, and there's a big transition period between those organizations that have already filed paper documents. Uh, the IRS also announced, by the way, recently that it would uh, hire 10,000 workers within the next year. So we'll just have to see what happens. Warren, let's look at one more story before the break. The Biden administration has proposed that the minimum tax rate for the very wealthy should be 20%. Some charity experts say it will kickstart charitable giving. Is that true? Well, before I answer that question, let's look at a few facts. The so-called billionaire tax would apply to households worth more than $100 million. In addition to income, it would be levied on the increase in value of stocks and other assets, which under current law 
is those assets are not taxed until they are sold, and then they're taxed usually under what's called a capital gains tax. Proponents of the law note that billionaires pay an average federal income tax of 8.2%, which according to the White House Office of Management and Budget is lower than the rate of the average American. So they're saying it's only fair that billionaires pay more because they can afford it and because they are currently paying a lower rate than others. Yeah, that's the argument. However, based on my research, it's just not true. According to the Nonpartisan Tax Policy Center, about 45% of all American households pay no federal income tax at all. So you really have to manipulate the data in strange ways to support that White House claim that billionaires pay less taxes, even a lower tax rate than the so-called average American, uh, especially when so many average Americans, you know, 45% of them pay no taxes at all. Now, what about the claim that this will increase charitable giving? Well, Nicholas Duquette, an economist and associate professor of public policy at the University of Southern California, is one of those making that claim. Uh, he said this to philanthropy today, that a change in the tax law might lead stockholders to scramble to make donations under the current more advantageous tax laws, if a new tax law even comes into effect. You said might. That means that it also might not. Well, that's exactly right. And even if it does increase the giving of appreciated assets, those appreciated assets most likely will go into donor-advised funds and foundations. Because again, keep in mind, we're taxing the ultra-rich. They already have typically donor-advised funds and foundations set up, and uh, they can just put the money there. They still uh, will have control of the giving. And in some cases, if they give, for example, companies or stocking companies that they own or control, they can do that in a way that allows them to continue to control and run their businesses while getting a massive tax deduction. Uh, and then, of course, one of the things that we've written about foundations and donor advice funds in the past is that once the money gets into the foundation, it often just sits there. And the uh, current law says that they only have to give away about 5% per year. So it's likely that even if it might spur on paper an increase in giving into foundations and donor advice funds, it's not likely that a lot of that money will actually go to philanthropic purposes. Now, here at Ministry Watch, we don't take positions on pending legislation, but in my personal view, this new law would likely not increase the taxes paid by billionaires it likely would increase the amount of money that ends up in foundations or in offshore and lower tax jurisdictions and have a minimal impact on actual charitable giving in this country. And I should add, Natasha, by the way, that it seems unlikely that this bill will go anywhere anytime soon. The Ultra Millionaire Tax Act of 2021 is currently in the Senate Finance Committee, where there is a virtual tie in membership between Republicans and Democratic members. Warren, we're going to take another quick break. When we return our weekly lightning round of ministry news, I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. 
Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Warren, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What do you have first? Well, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, as I mentioned at the top of the program, has signed a law, signed into law a bill that protects private information of individuals who support charities and other nonprofit organizations. Uh, the original bill was called House Bill 970, and it states that public agencies cannot request personal donor information from nonprofits or disclose personal information without the written permission of every individual who is identifiable from the potential release of that personal information, including members, support of, uh, supporters of, volunteers for, or donors to an organization. Now, this law will protect donor privacy while at the same time allowing nonprofits the ability to release financial information to the public, like the Form 990, for example, that donors need in order to make wise giving decisions. And what ministries did Christina Darnell spotlight in her Ministries Making a Difference column this week? Well, a number of them, including Convoy of Hope, they've joined forces with the Assemblies of God World Mission to deliver relief supplies to refugees in Ukraine and seven neighboring countries. Farms International is partnering with a church in Kenya to provide interest-free loans to five local business owners, including produce and livestock farmers and small store owners. And the Fellowship of Christian Athletes did something interesting this month. They will present the K. Yao Award to Elon University's Charlotte Smith, who is in her 11th season as head coach of Elon's women's basketball team. By the way, Elon is just right up the road from me here in Charlotte. The K. Yao Award was first awarded in 2008 and is now presented annually by the Fellowship of Christian Athletes to a basketball coach who has, in their words, exemplified biblical principles over the course of his or her career. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? Well, I hope you will forgive me, Natasha, and my our listeners here, a bit of shameless self-promotion, but I wanted folks to know that I was on the syndicated radio program Issues Etc. this week to talk about the Hillsong scandal. We've done more than 50 articles about Hillsong over the last two and a half years, so we had quite a lot to talk about. We didn't want to get into it all here, but I'll include a link to that program in the show notes of this podcast. Also, my former employer, the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, asked me back to discuss what it means to have a godly response to evangelical sex abuse scandals. I had a great conversation with my friend and former colleague Shane Morris. Again, I'll include a link in the show notes. And a quick reminder, 
that we've uh, kind of created a new way that you can give to Ministry Watch. You can now give via text. If this is your preferred way of giving, or if you'd just like to give it a try, just text at Ministry Watch to 52014. Again, that's at Ministry Watch to 52014. Uh, I've tried it myself. It was pretty easy. And if I can do it, I guess just about anybody can. And also, I'd like to mention that if you've got a story that you want us to cover or a ministry that you think needs a closer look, please email us. Our email is info at ministrywatch.com. Several of the stories on the website this week, including one or two that will be coming up next week, will are motivated by tips that we've gotten from listeners and readers like you. And a reminder that you can help this program by leaving a rating on your podcast app. The more ratings we get, the easier it is for other people to find us. It's a quick, easy, and free way that you can support Ministry Watch. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Ann Stike, Roxanne Stone, Bob Smetana, Shannon Cuthrill, Adele M. Banks, Kim Roberts, and Christina Darnell. Until next time, may God bless you.